as we look at the visit of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod the king is called himself Herod the Great. And he was called the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. Magi is, according to my little footnote in my Bible, a cast of wise men specializing in astronomy, astrology, and natural sciences. And coming from the east is either Persia or Babylon, Babylon, 700 to 1,000 miles away. The main thing is they're Gentiles. They are not religiously or ethnically Jewish. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they would be seen as foreigners from the nations and not as those who belong to God's people. Well, let's start with what Herod hears and knows about Jesus. First, he hears that a king has been born and the wise men call him the king of the Jews. And so a ruler with rightful power and authority to say what goes in the kingdom has arrived. But this is no ordinary king. The wise men say they have come to worship this king. The word worship in English was originally worship, to recognize and rejoice in the supreme worth of someone. And of course, ultimately, God alone is worthy to be worshipped. So here's a child who's born who's not only worthy to be honored as a king, but worshipped as God. Herod puts that together and realizes they must be talking about the Messiah. So put the question of two alongside the question of verse four. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So king, worthy to be worshipped, Messiah. It's the Hebrew word for anointed one. The Greek word for anointed one is Christ. It's God's promised king who would deliver his people and set all things right and reign over all people as the highest king forever. One example of that kind of king is, that is promised is Daniel 7, if you want to turn to that. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be 
destroyed. And so when a good Jewish person would read Daniel 7, 13, 14, they're thinking, that's the Messiah that will fulfill those kinds of verses. So Herod is aware of a massive amount of truth about Jesus. How does he respond to the truth he knows? Verse 3 says he was troubled. Besides asking the scribes and priests where the child was to be born, he talks to the wise men in verse 7 and 8. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Though it sounds like Herod wants to worship Jesus, but we know that that is not really the case. Look at verse 12 and verse 16. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So Herod doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to get rid of Jesus. Herod is aware of a lot of truth about Jesus, but his response is hostility. Next, let's look at what the scribes and priests know about Jesus and how they respond. Back in Matthew 2, verse 4. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So in addition to knowing that the Messiah has been born and knowing that he is worthy to be worshipped, (coughs) these religious leaders know exactly where the promised king would be born. They don't need even need time to look it up. They quote from memory some verses from Micah chapter 5. And they obviously were familiar with the passage because they got the first part of verse 2 word for word. But look at the rest of Micah 5 verse 2. If you want to just turn over to Micah for a moment. Micah chapter 5. The end of verse 2 says, From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The promised ruler would be born in Bethlehem, but... His goings forth or his origin is from the days of eternity. So everyone else begins their life at conception. Our goings forth don't start until we're born. But the promised Messiah is different from us. He has existed from all eternity. And then if they would keep going in Micah 5, they would see in verse 4, 
at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. So not just a king of Jews, known and esteemed in Israel, but great to the ends of the earth, recognized and honored as great in all the nations of the world. That's why the wise men have come as the first installment, recognizing the greatness of this king that's been born. And then if they've got to verse 5, they would have seen this one will be our peace. Think of Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and he shall be called the Prince of Peace. So the priests and scribes know even more about Jesus than Herod. But while Herod opposed the king, they ignored the king. They know a king has been born. They know the Messiah has arrived, that he's worthy to be worshipped as the one who existed for all eternity. And what do they do with what they know? Nothing. They don't bother to go to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. Do you know how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? About five or six miles. Less than from here to downtown Sioux City. You could walk it in two hours easily. Uh, you could get there even faster if you wanted to on horseback. But they just don't care. They don't care. Compare their apathetic response to the true Messiah with this enthusiastic response to a so-called Messiah. There's an article in Christianity Today a few years ago. I read a news report about a Messiah sighting in Brooklyn, New York. 20,000 Lubavitcher Jews live in Crown Heights, and many among them believed the Messiah was dwelling among them in the person of Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, who was 91 years old. Word of the rabbi's public appearance spread like a flash fire through the streets of Crown Heights, and Lubavitchers were soon sprinting toward the synagogue. They jammed by the hundreds into the main hall, even climbing the pillars to create more room. The hall filled with an air of anticipation and frenzy, normally found at championship sporting events, not a religious service. When the curtain was pulled back, those who had crowded the synagogue saw a frail old man with a long beard who could do little more than wave and tilt his head. No one seemed to mind, though. Long live our master, our teacher, our rabbi, king, messiah, forever and ever, they sang over and over, building in volume, until the rabbi made a gesture with his hand, and the curtain closed. So these people are just going crazy over this 91-year-old little old man that can barely move. And here's the true Messiah is born. And it's like, meh. We don't need to go see him. It's no big deal. So last, let's look at how the wise men respond to Jesus. Verses 9 through 11 back in Matthew 2. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So first we see great rejoicing. They saw his star in the east 
and traveled a long, long way to see and worship this king. And now at last, they've gotten to the place where the child was. Their journey's over and they found him. And they're not just mildly happy about it, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. John Piper wrote this. Now this is a quadruple way of saying they rejoiced. It would be much to say they rejoiced, more to say they rejoiced with joy, more to say they rejoiced with great joy, and even more to say they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And what was all this joy about? They were on their way to the Messiah. They were almost there. I cannot avoid the impression then that true worship is not just ascribing authority and dignity to Christ. It is doing this joyfully. It is doing it because you have come to see something about Christ that is so desirable that being near him to ascribe authority and dignity to him personally is overwhelmingly compelling. So first, great rejoicing. Next, we see great reverence. When they enter the house and see him, they don't just keep standing or ask if they can sit down. They fall to the ground. They drop to their knees with their faces on the floor as a way of saying, you are high and I am low. It's a physical gesture that expresses great honor. Someone once said, if William Shakespeare were to come into the room, we would rise to our feet. But if Jesus Christ were to enter the room, we would all fall to our knees. The next phrase, with joy and reverence in their hearts, they worshipped him. The Greek word Matthew used is literally to kiss toward. So think of pagan worshippers kissing their idols, or maybe you hear somebody say, he kisses the ground she walks on. It's just a way of saying uh, there's an intense love and devotion there. And a word that tries to capture that idea is the word adore. We sang two songs this morning that used the word adore. And what does it mean? Here's the definition. To worship with deep, profound, often rapturous love. To regard with utmost esteem, love, and respect. To love or honor with intense devotion. In its fullest sense, adoration is less restrained than reverence and with more of a spirit of direct, active, and joyful worship. So next Sunday, we're going to sing, Oh, come let us adore him. And what we're saying to ourselves and one another is, Oh, come, let us worship Jesus with deep, profound love. Oh, come, let us regard Jesus with utmost esteem and respect. Oh, come, let us love and honor Jesus with intense devotion and joyful worship. Adore is not just a throwaway word. It captures the kind of response that is due Jesus for who he is. And last, they give gifts of great cost. It says, they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So besides the expense of a long trip, they brought treasures, very expensive gifts, fit for a king as a way of honoring him. In Psalm 72, which is a song of or for Solomon, to borrow Jesus' phrase, I believe this is speaking of someone greater than Solomon. Psalm 72, verse 8. 
May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow before him. All nations serve him. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. Let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. I think that's Jesus. And these gifts that they're offering are just an expression of that kind of honor, bringing gifts to this great king. So as we close, two questions. First, is Jesus worthy of such a response of great joy, deep reverence, heartfelt worship, and costly gifts. A few weeks ago, we sang the song, Is He Worthy? And at the end of the song, the chorus says, He is. So we already know the right answer. We know He is worthy of that kind of response. Then the next question would be, Is my response to Jesus appropriate in light of who he is. And it's possible you're a hypocrite like Herod, who said he wanted to worship Jesus, who could sing next Sunday, oh, come let us adore him, but there's no love for Jesus in his heart. There's only hatred in his heart. Go to John 3, that's all of us. It's how we all start. John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So the natural man, in our fallen nature, we hate Jesus. We're not even neutral. We hate him, just like Herod. Or you may be like the scribes and priests. You know a lot of truth about Jesus. Maybe you've been raised in a Christian home. You've been going to church a long time. You know a lot. But you're apathetic about Jesus. I remember getting an email from a brother who had to move away to another town. And he described one of the churches he visited by saying, quote, They sang good songs but their eyes were dead. And maybe they were just tired that morning. It's hard to worship Jesus if you didn't get enough sleep the night before. Maybe they lost their first love. Need to pray that God would restore it. And the other scary possibility is dead eyes being a symptom of a dead heart. There's just nothing there. Everybody listening to this 
message this morning has heard about Jesus, knows about Jesus. The question is, do you have a relationship with him? Do you know him personally? God is showing you that you don't confess. My heart is not right. I have rebelled against Christ's authority, and I have failed to give him the honor that is due him. This is what Jesus says about the honor that is due him. John 5, 23, 24, or 22, 23. Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, I'm worthy of the same honor God the Father Almighty is worthy of. And to fail to honor me that way is to fail to honor God. That's, again, where we all start. None of us have honored God or Jesus according to what he is due. So we need to repent of our rebellion as well as give up any hope of making things right by something we can do. Isaiah 64, 6, that all of our so-called righteousness is unacceptable as filthy rags. So we trust in Jesus Christ. Matthew one twenty one in the Christmas story says, You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. That's what we need saving from, our sins. Or 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a true statement worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So believe that Jesus came and died on a cross to pay the penalty of our rebellion and disobedience. And then he rose from the dead to show he is able to save to the uttermost, which means completely and forever, those who come to God through him. And for those who are trusting Christ this morning, the Christmas season and Sunday morning worship services and other opportunities are like rehearsals for heaven, where we will give Jesus the honor that is due him as the great and glorious Savior that he is forever. Let's pray. Lord, we give you honor this morning. It's not even close to the honor you're due, but you have shown us who you are. You've revealed yourself. And we thank you that you came to be our Savior. Thank you that you died on a cross to forgive our sins. Thank you that you rose again to bring us to the Father. I thank you that we can know you and belong to you forever. I pray again for anyone who is here that doesn't know you, Lord. Uh, How can they hear all this truth about you and turn away? And they will, unless you intervene and do a miracle and change their heart. So we ask you do that miracle and that you'd open the hearts of those who are still dead to you. Lord, um, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.